Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke Njadni. And today we're going to continue our uh, review of core principles from the Agile Manifesto. This is part two. Uh, we had obviously done part one uh, uh, in our most recent episode, uh, going over the four principles that are at the very top of the Agile Manifesto. Last time we covered um, individuals and interactions over processes and tools and valuing working software over comprehensive documentation. And today we're going to uh, cover uh, valuing customer collaboration over contract negotiation and responding to change over following a plan. Got a lot of good points to cover here. Sounds like a plan. All right. So Luca, why don't, why don't you start us off with uh, the, you know, we value customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Help me, help me unpack that. Oh boy, that's that's a big one. Well, yeah, that's why we do this. That's why we come to work every day. Yeah, this is because you know it's it's so so multifaceted and uh, and complex. Uh, and to the to that point, like agreements about how to work together, isn't that a contract in itself? Uh, as much as we say that you know agile is about finding your own approach and you know being open to to change not not being overly rigid in agile you also need solid agreements you need a solid foundation for how to work together and so th there is always contract ne contract negotiation on some level maybe not on on a legal level which i guess is what the agile manifesto was talking about right Right. I think that was the original, again, they were reacting to a certain, you know, phase of, of how things worked back then and, and still in many organizations do work where you have maybe again, a large dev shop that's doing either a government contract or some, you know, internal uh, application for some huge client. And they spend months and months and months wrangling over this very detailed contract, trying to discover, trying to cover every possible edge case um, and a lot of that probably involved very detailed requirements because how can you scope a project without requirements? And uh, again, which leads to big design up front. Um, and uh, what they essentially they were saying is, let's start the process. Let's get you something early and start getting your feedback because then you may realize that you want something different, that you don't want all those things. Who was that saying you... that? The Agile, uh, the Agilists. I imagine the Agilists were saying that. They they were suggesting that to their customers and saying, let's collaborate more closely during the process. It should not be negotiate everything up front, which involves designing everything up front. We go away for two years and then we come back to you with a completed application and you're and you say, Ah, this isn't what we wanted, or ah, can it do this? Now that you see it in front of you, start that feedback loop as early as possible. Yeah, but you know, if if you come to the situation where you say, "Ah, this isn't what we wanted," wouldn't it be nice to have a contract that you can point to and say, "Now give me what I was asking for"? Well, <laughs> so the problem is, is that what they were asking for may not be what they want when they actually see it. You know, a lot of times, you know the you know, the plan doesn't survive first contact with the enemy when you, you think you know what you want and you may specify what you want and they may give you what you say you want, they being the dev shop. And then you actually start using it and you go, oh, now that I'm using it, I'm seeing all these new things. So what you're telling um, me is that we need to plan more upfront. <laughs> no, Luca. No. Bad Luca. 
<laughs> All right, I, I'll go be in my corner. <laughs> so yeah, so so the point is to involve the customer, have much more frequent check-ins. You know, uh, I think uh, various agile frameworks formalize this with this. Um, you know, Scrum has the planning sessions and and things like that. And I I don't think getting into how the specific frameworks do it is useful because as we've said in the past, those frameworks can become monster and have become monsters in themselves where you rigidly follow this framework um, to the detriment of actually <laughs> um, interacting with each other and, and, and practicing improvement. But the point is to have many more frequent check-ins with your customer where your, your goal is to show them something that works and get them using it and get their feedback on what, see if priorities have changed because priorities will inevitably, priorities will inevitably change over the course of a project, as they learn new information on their business side, and as they see your product that you're giving them, as they see it start to work, and as they start to use it, priorities will change. And and what you're working on at any given point should be the highest priority thing, by definition. Yes, and I want to point out that this is not some crazy invention of Agile. Like, if you, if you read traditional requirements management literature, like, like uh, what's his name? Cal Vigas, I think, for instance. Oh, I haven't read any of that. I have. And amazingly, <laughs> what, what uh, Vigas states in his book, and, you know, this is, this is one, of the, one of the famous books about requirements engineering. He states that you should expect a rate of change of requirements of about 10% per month for traditional projects, not for agile projects, mind you. Right. So in other words, even even without Agile, you can expect so much change, so much churn. I mean, 10% per month essentially means that after a year, nothing is as it was. Right. And so Agile essentially just takes that reality by the horns and says, okay, fine. We need to deal with that in a constructive way because it's happening anyway, whether we like it or not, whether we are trying to do traditional requirements engineering or not. So I think, so I imagine most people hear this and, and they say, yeah, that sounds great. That's, I'm sure it's all. I think it sounds frightening. Very... <laughs> you think it sounds frightening to, to give up on the, on the detailed contracts? Yes. And, and, and sort of to, to look reality in the eye and say, we can't actually plan this. Like what else can we do? If I, I don't know, Jeff, whether you've ever paid for software development with your own money. I have, and believe me, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Like you're giving this developer a stack of, of money and then they kind of disappear into, you know, uh, into the cloud or wherever it is that software developers live. And hopefully at some point they will return with something that is actually useful to you. And if not, then you're out, you know, a nice stack of money. Right. And it's even worse when, when it's not an upfront stack of money, it's an hourly rate and there's the... They're, and the meat is just running. You don't know what <laughs> the meter's just it. running, and you don't know what you're getting for it. Um, yeah, which is interesting enough why I don't charge hourly when I do my development work for my customers. So, so yeah, no, it it is scary. I I guess there there are a couple of different ways to kind of approach a solution to that. But in the end, I, what we were talking about here before we pressed record is any solution to that dynamic requires a high degree of trust between the customer and the development team. And sometimes you just don't have it. Um, and 
sometimes there's not really a relationship and you have to try to build one up from scratch. And sometimes there's may, sometimes there's maybe a broken relationship where, you know, if these two, if the, if the customer and the development team have been married together for a while in the sense that the development team is the internal IT organization and the customer is the finance department or whatever. And there's, there's a lack of trust on both sides. You know, the, the finance team says we've, we've, you know, had these projects in the past and they never go anywhere. And the IT organization says, you always change your mind and you never, you know, tell us what you really want and that kind of thing Uh, to repair. That is, is a, is a difficult task. Yes. Agreed. Um, But I'm wondering, like, if there is no trust, doesn't it make sense to have a contract and say, okay, fine, this is what we agree on. And we also agree that if you don't deliver, then at least I get to wring your neck. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, that may give you nice, warm feelings up front, but in the end, you're going to be wringing necks rather than getting the successful project that's true like it, it may it may be very satisfying to wring somebody's neck if they don't right. deliver but that will make them not really deliver anymore will it right and and i think in you know there are certainly toxic workplaces out there where you know big bureaucracies where there are people hiding inside and and they don't actually care about getting the work done they just care about not being blamed for it we're not talking to those people. <laughs> our audience doesn't consist of those people. We know our audience consists of people who care about that work and actually want to provide real value. And real value is when you know your work as a development organization, whether that's internal or uh, an independent shop or whatever, when you ship products that actually make it in front of real customers that don't just go most of the way and then get canceled or don't really end up succeeding in the marketplace because they're not what the marketplace needs. Like you provide value when you actually finish something and get it in front of customers and get it in their hands and they start using it. Um, And if you, and I have faith that our audience wants to do that. Uh, And so, uh, you know, specifying contracts to the nth degree upfront is it's just ignoring the reality that that's just not going to happen. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I meet a lot of engineers through my trainings, and I've, I have never met anyone who wasn't, you know, serious about their work and giving it a good, honest try. So, you know, I think it's, it's not just hypothetical that we can say, you know, people will be honest and they will, they will try to, to really um, do their job well. That ha- this has absolutely been my observation and my experience. But now I still don't know what to do about this trust issue. Like, Jeff, what do you recommend if I want to go to an agile way? And so I I cannot have a contract that specifies the deliverable to any degree of certainty because the whole point is that we keep ourselves open to change. Right. What are you going to do? So, I mean, the the way to build trust between parties and coincidentally, the the most effective way to get to an end product that is successful is to tighten these feedback loops, to shorten the iteration time, to like, if you can, if you have a customer that you're working with and they don't trust that you're actually going to get the end product done, you know, say you're on this project, you know, this is a large project. It's going to take two years to get to 
what everyone agrees is kind of a reasonable endpoint. If you can demo them something that works, you know, that you hit a milestone as soon as possible within a month, probably not two weeks, but you know, on the time scale of a month and you show them something that gives them a little bit of confidence. And then the month after that, you show them something else and you work together and you say, Hey, you know, we're pretty happy with how this works, but what do you think? Does this actually fill your needs? And you're like, yeah, mostly, but why can't, why don't we change this? You come out of those meetings, like showing up to some, showing up to a very frequent milestone iteration meeting like that with something that works and then getting feedback from your customer and collaborating on it. That's how you build trust. Yes, or for one thing, yes, this is how you build trust. But for another, this is how you end up not needing trust because they don't actually need to take your word for it that right. you know progress is good and blah blah and whatnot. They can just see for themselves, can't they? Right, right. It's there's there's a there's an element of the one of the previous points in the manifesto valuing working software over comprehensive documentation. You know, if you show them something that is working, that's just that's so much more valuable. Well, that, that's incontrovertible proof. They have something working. So, you know, right. why worry? There it is right in front of them. It is creating value. Right. You don't, they don't need to, even if you have a PowerPoint presentation with your, yep, we're, we're 75%, we're 25% through the timeline and oh, we're, God. and we're 35% done. We swear. Then you get, then you get those famous watermelon presentations, you know, green on the outside, red on the inside. Right. And it's, I, I, I always love it because that percentage complete shoots up to 95%, like within half the timeline of the project and then just stays at 95% and never moves forever. Yeah. That, that's the famous 90-10 rule. Uh, the first 90% of the project take the first 90% of the time. The last 10% of the project take <laughs> yeah. the other 90% of the time. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so, you know, I, I think we're, we're covering this pretty well. I did want to say, uh, and this harkens back to a, an email that we got from a, a listener quite a while ago, where he was uh, he was on a, a, a client development shop, uh, working in a client development shop, and he basically said, you know, our our leadership sells fixed content for a fixed price that is underbid uh, in too short a timeline, and I'm wondering if Agile can help me out. Nobody can help you. No. So nobody can help you. Like there, there is like when you have a, a broken sales process or a broken pricing process, um, or you have an onerous contract that is already in place that you're on the hook for, uh, there's, there's no way, there's no way to manage a project that is going to solve that. You, I would say, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you practice agile techniques internally, we've talked about this in the past also in terms of kind of dipping your toe into agile within a larger waterfall organization, like you can make your engineering effort more efficient and effective, especially if you're investing in your, in your daily work processes and that kind of thing. But there, you will hit a ceiling um, in terms of how, how effective that can be. And that ceiling is pretty low. Yeah. So, so just to point out, if you, if you have, for example, such a broken sales process whereby you you run afoul of what's called the iron triangle of uh, project management, you know, time, resources, and scope, and all three of them are fixed, 
you know, whether you do it agile or whether you do it traditionally or, or whatever else, you're going to uh, you're going to be in trouble. However, I want to talk about something else, which is very crucial, and I think a lot of people aren't quite aware of it, and that is that if you embark on an agile journey with your IT organization, you know, with or with your engineering organization within your company, you will at some point change the way your organization, your IT organization, um, acts and um, and is perceived from the outside so much that you will run into conflict with the rest of the organization that maybe stays in the old-fashioned way. So, for example, if you want to start working in an agile way, but your financial department that you know that runs your budgeting is still in a traditional way, there will be a tremendous impedance mismatch because they will have this expectation that there will be a project plan that you must follow and it will have milestones and it will have deliverables and it will have uh, requirements, um, documents. And you're just going to say, no, we don't like that. We don't work like that anymore. <laughs> and then say, well, th th this is not how this works. You need to give us a, a detailed plan about what we're giving you this, I don't know, million bucks for. And that, I think, is a, a great and often unrealized danger of, of those kinds of initiatives. If you want to move from traditional development to agile development, it will by necessity have an influence on the rest of the company. You cannot do that just in isolation for your, for your engineering department. Right. At some point, you will look and act and behave and interact so differently that either the rest of the company will change with you or, in fact, your entire agile initi initiative may slide back. Right. And and I think that kind of ties into your earlier point about the, you know, time, resources, and scope. You know, inherent in any agile development effort is that scope is the one that should be the most flexible because scope will change over time because scope is requirements. Um, you can you can fix people and you can fix uh, time and say, this is your team. We can't we can't hire any else. You have these five people and we've got to be done by this date or we have a big you know, there's a big show or, or like marketing has to plan out their promotion activities in advance. So this is the date we've got to ship. Um, and then at that point, you work on the highest priority things until you're done. Um, and so I think that's, you know, you, you don't just go to your, your CFO and say, we can never guarantee anything. Like that's, that's not reasonable um, from a business standpoint or, or, or a relationship standpoint. Um, so you say, you know, this is the goal. We, you know, you're you're telling us what budget we can spend, and we've all agreed on the timeline. And essentially, we start at the highest priority things. We can't guarantee every bit of scope, but we will guarantee that it will be the best we can do in that time. And it will. You can estimate. You know, it's going to. You, you pad it enough, to, your schedule enough, to where you can be confident of achieving some functionality. And then, if there's bells and whistles beyond that, those can will change. Um, I will say, I want to, I want to make sure we don't get too far away. This is the agile embedded podcast after all. So let's maybe look at, <laughs> so it, we keep talking about internal it organizations and our audience is like, we're not, we're developing physical products here. Uh, so 
you know, what are what are some of the the things that are specific to developing embedded products um, that this may fall under? There is nothing that is specific to to embedded or anything that is specific to to purely software products. This is this is a problem that is as old as building things on the contract. Um, the but same... hardware, Luca. Hardware. Mm-hmm. There's hardware. Hardware is hard. Yes, it is. Completely agreed. And it, and if anything, maybe it makes those problems more pressing. But the principles stay the same. You know, e- even if you're not building electronic devices at all, if you're if you're building, I don't know, houses, the same problem still, in some sense, applies. I don't know about building houses. That's <laughs> it's true though. Like like when when we when our house was built, that was that was a purely agile process. That was so fascinating about it. I, you know, I watched it, and it was, it was plain old agile. Yes, of course, there was a plan. An architect showed up and drew a plan, but it was completely clear to everyone that this plan was just um, sort of a a statement of intent. We want, you know, we want there to be a house, and it should have three windows over on that side. But where precisely those windows were going to end up? was still kind of open like if i if i looked at the plan of course i could measure okay the plan says the position of the windows should be this but um you know we 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 were modifying an existing structure so we had to open up the structure look at it and say okay there's a couple of gaps between between whatever that's called joists or something in english um and this is where the windows are going to be i see what you mean and so on and so forth And, and to to the point that, for example, they had daily stand-ups. Of course, they didn't call them that. I, you know, if I, if I had gone to those burly Bavarian uh, workmen and I would have told them, "Oh, you have a very nice agile process there," they would have looked at me like I have two heads. But the point was, every day, the architect would show up, would gather all the workers around, would say, "Okay, drywall person, how's it going? Are you done with that room over there? Oh, you are. Okay, excellent. Electrician." That means you you're free to start pulling cables into that room. Maybe um, grab the owner of the house and ask him where he wants his sockets, and then you can you know drill the holes and mount the sockets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was purely agile, down to the daily stand-ups. Interesting, interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Okay, so so you're out there. You're you're developing embedded products. You know, we've talked about. It's obvious to everyone. The hardware development timescales are often and and to some extent inevitably so but but are often just longer than software development um timescales yeah but so what the principles stay the same the principles stay the same exactly exactly this is kind of the problem this is yes this is the agile embedded podcast but the principles are so universal that even if you if you don't have any electrons flowing anywhere in your product the same issues will still be present in some form and the solution will still look the same in some form. Sure, and and I guess just uh, people people may not realize the implication of that. And we've I, I really want to talk more in the future about faster hardware iterations, um, and and we've touched on this in the past. And I I want to get some hardware experts on the show to really talk about how we can do that. You know whether it's it's 
you know, I, I don't know whether it's necessarily frequency or latency or just overall throughput, but it's um, really frequency is is what we want is um, when you find a problem with the hardware, getting it fixed and getting a new version that has that improved performance or fixes that bug or whatever it is as soon as possible and, and try doing everything to reduce that time down. Because I think a lot of people get complacent and say, well, this is just the way it is. You know, I hard like it takes twelve weeks to get spin a new board, um, and I I don't think that's that's necessarily true. And I think it can unlock a lot of capabilities with your organization when you question those limits and you start to push them. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, that that smells like we're moving towards the next. Yeah, I think we've beaten this one to death. We're we're already naturally moving on. Yeah. So responding to change or following a plan. And I think Jeff is making the point that the the shorter your iterations are, the easier it is to respond to change, right? Right, and and making this and and essentially developing that comfort for you're in the middle of the project, just developing that comfort with looking at things as they are and not how they're written down in your original plan. Plan original planning is great because it forces you to think through things, but no plan survives contact with the enemy. And when you are in the middle of your development process and it's obvious things need to change, you've got to silence that little voice in your head that says, oh, but the plan said to go that way. I'm sorry, that doesn't, that direction does not make sense anymore. Follow the, like, do what is higher priority and more valuable work. Yes, and to to go back to this example with, with uh, rebuilding my house, like the plan said, there will be three windows on this side of the house. But the precise position of the window, you know, that's going to to change depending on what exactly we're going to discover once we knock down the walls and, and see what's, what's there to greet us. So, yes, make long-term plans, have, have roadmaps, have sort of a clear direction, have a vision but there is no value in nailing everything down to you know to the tiniest detail that's just that's just wasteful right right and uh, you know this is particularly common in safety critical industries like medical devices where i work and and we've both done work in automotive and and aerospace um a lot of times those safety critical industries have very heavyweight processes and heavy heavyweight documentation and simply the 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 choice of tools you use to store that documentation introduces enough friction to where it really slows this develop this inevitable change that happens when you're in the middle of development it completely unnecessarily introduces a lot of friction into changing that and so you know realizing Things are going to, like, the the plan is going to change. Requirements are going to change. We need to invest in a process that allows those things to change and makes it easy for those things to change. That has big implementation for the tools we use, the processes we follow, and that grows into the whole culture of your organization to where when when you as as an engineer go to you know, the project manager and say, hey, I felt like I just discovered this problem uh, and we need to change direction. 
you know, the culture, you can tell the culture needs to change when the project manager fights you on that. And you can tell the culture is in the right place when the project manager says, sweet, I'm so glad you found this now. <laughs> Let's get on that and change and change the direction. Um, because that's reality. It was going to happen anyway. And if you fight that reality, it's just going to, you're just going to suffer for it. Exactly. And th the other thing is, um, responding to change is also something that you can and should train for, I suppose. So the more you do it, the easier it becomes and the less of a threat it is. And just let me make very clear that responding to change doesn't mean that you don't need to plan or that, you, that you're free to, you know, just change your mind uh, at a whim. That's not the point. But the point is, inevitably, you will discover new things. You... You can't possibly know less than you know now, right? You can only learn more. Mm. And so wouldn't it be foolish to not react to the new things you learn? I really liked what you just said there in terms of training for training for responding to change. So that's what you do. You, you train organizations to implement DevOps principles and act in a more agile way. Can you maybe pull an example from your training materials or, or something like that? Well, maybe maybe to take a step back, there's this principle that says, if it hurts, do it more often. So if you find yourself struggling with the reality of change, then that is probably a sign that you're not as good as it, at it as you should be. Sure. And you should expose yourself to it more. And that is indeed something that you can just make a decision to, to sort of force yourself towards by changing your process doing shorter iterations, maybe maybe even doing it in, in harmless ways, such as, you know, getting good at thinking on your feet, you know, run a hackathon or something uh, where you can do that in a safe, painless way. You just try stuff out and it's okay. And also remember that this is this is the basis of what, what some companies do um, in operations, which is called chaos engineering, where they have... Uh, hmm. mechanisms, scripts, I'm guessing, that will disrupt their their production systems. So Netflix uh, pioneered this, I think. Uh, they they have, uh, what's it called? It's called the Simeon Army. It's a bunch of scripts. Like they, they, There's like the latency monkey that will just inject latency into their live production system. Mm-hmm. And you might think, you know, they are crazy. Why would they break the production system? But they do have a point because it's going to break anyway. So they better be prepared for it. And the latency monkey, for instance, give them the, gives them the chance to prove to themselves that they are ready to uh, to react to such a situation. And if they aren't, like if 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 Netflix Netflix's stack blows up, then at least because this is an artificial outrage, um, outage, they can stop the script and the service will be restored and they, and they know they can run it, you know, at 12 in the, in the uh, at 12 noon when everybody's in the office anyway, instead of at three in the morning when those things typically happen. And so that way you get yourself used to those kinds of dis disruptions, like, like change or like outages, et cetera, et cetera. And it's funny, like, so bringing that up again, bringing it back to the embedded world, I was just thinking my first reaction was, okay, how, how can you introduce this kind of chaos engineering into, into embedded development? And you can, 
you know, you can do system level or maybe I, w- I would call it integration level testing um, on your embedded devices where you're you're injecting faults. May, uh, fuzz testing is a great example of kind of exactly what you're saying, where you're injecting a whole bunch of random inputs and making sure that your device handles them uh, correctly. You can you can uh, replace certain mod, like do a do a build of your embedded software and you know replace uh, like your memory allocator with one that's going to intentionally fail every once in a while, and then you actually want to see it do the right thing. Maybe in a a medical device, it just throws an error code and shuts down, or maybe in some consumer device, it has to reset and you know bring itself back up very quickly. And so if you introduce these you know, do a test build where you introduce these modules that are going to periodically fail and then make sure your device operation seems seamless. That means that you've handled those uh, correctly. Uh, so that's kind of a way to apply that principle even to embedded systems. Yeah, and to give another example, um, famously Amazon's development infrastructure is inte- um, intentionally flaky. You can't actually be sure as you're developing against a given service or something that the service will be available to you so that hopefully um, gets you into the mindset of expecting the case where the service is down for whatever reason unreachable for whatever reason and of course you can do the same thing even in embedded maybe um, maybe you want to uh, be nice to your colleague and as you're walking past his desk tomorrow you just pull out a random wire and see um, how well you react to it (laughs) I'm sure he'll be grateful. Oh, I, I don't. I don't know that your colleague is going to be grateful for that. But I will say, like, uh, um, so for those of you who are developing maybe IoT devices, um, at that point, you know, your embedded hardware has this con- connection to the internet and to the uh, to the cloud. And at that point, all of those same issues that Netflix and Amazon and any other cloud SaaS developer kind of works with in terms of availability and latency of of services over a network. Now you have to deal with those too. So you can you can make sure your device handles those uh, network disruptions um, cleanly. And and there's you know, you have a net you presumably have a network connection, and those are famously easy to to fuzz, and maybe there are lots of libraries out there that you can use to um, you know alter those in in fun new ways and uh, uh, as opposed to say analog connections, you'd have to. Well, we've talked about you know building hardware simulators in the past that may get a little more messy and require more investment. But okay, so I think we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole here of <laughs> of chaos engineering. Yes, we have. Um, but the original original point was responding to change over following a plan, and essentially, you know, it's you have to build an organization that has a culture that is comfortable doing that. Uh, and I think that was that was kind of how we got on that tangent. But it's there are a lot of implications there, but in general, shorten the iteration cycles, improve your feedback loops, um, recognize that what you're working on for the next short period of time should be the highest priority uh, goals in front of you with all the most current information, as opposed to following this thing that was written down months and months ago. Yes. And I think it, it bears pointing out that responding to change is something that needs to be applied to all levels. So if you want to respond to change quickly, maybe you need to 
have the technological base for that. So for example, you need to be able to iterate quickly on your board designs. Um, you will have to have the processes in place one level up that deal well with change. So agile processes, for instance, obviously. Um, you will need to have an organization that, um, that can work well with change, which mostly means having, you know, having different teams, uh, different elements of your product, of your architecture be as independent from another as they can be so that a change on one side doesn't have too, too disruptive an influence on the other side. And of course, just like Jeff already pointed out, you need to have the appropriate culture where change is not just expected, but actually valued. Celebrated. Yes. And, 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 you know, this is not a hollow phrase. If we learn something new, it should be awesome. And it should be, you know, an, a great chance to, to follow that. And if you've got the organization and the processes and the tooling to make that easy, then, then there's really nothing to be afraid of, is there? There's a, uh, I want to tell a little bit of a war story here. So, uh, you know, my first job out of grad school was with this uh, small um, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle startup. Uh, the the aircraft were helicopters uh, and they were full size, 35 foot rotor diameter, um, unmanned. And eventually we were we were bought out by Boeing and, and did some time there. But when I first got there, it was very much a startup. And the uh, the man who started the company uh, had worked in um, uh, the Air Force of his home country uh, for many years. That was how he got his career started. And so working on manned aircraft and, um, you know, as as happens in that industry, like test pilots would die in crashes. Um, and it was that that was his background. And so when we were flying this unmanned helicopter around, and things would go wrong and the bird would crash. And all of us would be, you know, there's this collective sense. This man who ran this company was almost skipping out to the crash site in excitement. And he would say, you know, we're saying like, why, why is this a good thing? He said, because we're about to learn something new and nobody died. And I thought that was just a really powerful, poignant thing. Um, you know, in, in most of us, uh, people don't have to die for us to learn something new. Um, and I, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to make it too morbid and, and focus on that part of it. But the point was, is like this, this very expensive aircraft that we had spent a year building and all of this effort gone into just fell out of the sky and is literally in flames crumpled on the ground. And he responded positively to that because we were about to learn something to make the next version better to prevent that problem from happening again. Um, and it's that's a mindset shift that can be very hard to to achieve, um, but I think it's it's a very effective way to run an engineering organization if you as if you as a leader cultivate that in your organization where nobody panic. This is this is a learning opportunity. We can make things better. Um, I think that's, that's really a powerful, uh, a powerful way of going about things. Yes. And by the way, um, one of the best ways you can do that is 
next time somebody comes up to you and says, I think I've, I think I've discovered a bug. You're just going to say, thank you. I, you know, this has been sort of a, a fixed pattern uh, in my career that the, the most effective, most senior engineers who also build the best products were the ones who said exactly this if you pointed out something that apparently wasn't quite right with their product. They didn't say, no, this is impossible. Or, How could you tell me or anything? They would say, oh, thank you. Absolutely. All right. What do you think? I think we've uh, beaten this one to death. Definitely. <laughs> All righty. So, Luca, where can people go to find you online? Well, you can go to uh, luca.engineer. So, L-U-C-A dot engineer. That will link you to my website where you can find my contact information. You can find my blog posts. Uh, and in general, get in contact with me if you would like my support in agile processes, DevOps, both sort of generally and specific to the embedded industry. Jeff, what about you? So you can go to jeffgable.com uh, and uh, likewise find my contact information and articles I've written. Um, and I focus uh, very much on the medical device industry. Uh, for those of you out there who are in the medical device industry, I have I have a particular passion for dragging that industry out of the out of the dark ages and into the 21st century. Um, but I'm also, you know, obviously this podcast is not specific at all to the medical device industry. And I would really love to hear from you um, uh, if you are curious about these uh, processes and, and, and want to improve the way your organization does things and develop some better products, uh, please reach out. All right. Well, this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke Ingenny. And we will see you next time. Thanks. See you. Bye.